Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. If we want America to thrive in the 21st century, then we must stop running from the competition. And instead, we must start totally winning and winning and winning again. Remember what I used to say? We're going to win so much. We're going to win that the people of Missouri are going to go to your governor and they're going to say, Governor, please go see the president. We can't stand winning so much. Remember, I used to say that, right? I used to say it. And that's the Art of the Deal is a 1987 book whose listed authors are, in reverse order, Tony Schwartz and Donald Trump, whose voice you just heard at a rally in November of 2017, his first year as U.S. president. According to the National Review, The Art of the Deal debuted at the top of the New York Times bestseller list and stayed on the list for almost a year. Trump has called the book his second favorite book, after the Bible. Of the writing process, Schwartz told The New Yorker that he wrote the entire first draft and that Trump's comments on it were minimal. Trump disputes this account, saying, quote, He didn't write the book. I wrote the book. I wrote the book. It was my book. And it was a number one bestseller and one of the best-selling business books of all time. Some say it was the best-selling business book ever, end quote. In addition to noting that it actually was not the best-selling business book ever, The New Yorker quotes former head of Random House, which published the book, Howard Kaminsky. Kaminsky reportedly laughed and said, Trump didn't write a postcard for us. The book is a reflection of Trump himself, prominent in society and robustly celebrated by Donald Trump, and, as will be noted in this episode, with questions surrounding authorship. One scholar who's written about Trump is Dan McAdams. McAdams is the Henry Wade Rogers Professor of Psychology at Northwestern University and Director of the Foley Center for the Study of Lives. His research interests include personality theory, assessment, and research, as well as conceptions of self and identity in contemporary American society and the narrative study of lives. He's written about Trump's personality and narrative in articles published in The Guardian and The Atlantic, and he has a new book coming out about Trump. McAdams and I recently spoke at length about who Donald Trump is, and I share a conversation in this episode, The Episodic Man. I grew up in Gary, Indiana uh, in the 1960s. And uh, it was a terrible place. Uh, I hated Gary, Indiana, uh, not because of uh, poverty or things like that, although our family had very little money. But I was bored out of my mind. And yep. um, nothing to do, a cultural wasteland, uh, kind of an awkward, smart kid. And the big change in my life, the, the divider, the Rubicon that I crossed at age 18 was just going to college. And I went 
15 minutes away, <laughs> uh, 15 miles away, about 25 minutes away to Valparaiso University, a small school in, uh, in Indiana, Northwest Indiana. Uh, and it was transformative for me. It was a fabulous experience. Uh, but as far as the effect of the early years goes, uh, I guess there's some effect. I mean, Gary, Indiana was riven by race uh, uh, issues. Um, uh, there was a big election for the mayor in 66 or 67. Mayor Richard Hatcher won the election, African-American Democrat. He was the first black candidate ever in that town. And the town, which had been almost 100% Democrat since FDR, hmm. all the whites voted for the Republican, even though they didn't know who, what his name was. Yeah. And all the African-Americans voted black. Uh, and uh, it was 50-50. And uh Hatcher just barely won, and it was it was one of those situations where uh, it, it ignited sort of white flight in the city. But it, it sensitized me early on to the to the power of race. And as a little kid, as a little white kid, I was kind of mystified by it all, and sort of a racist little kid myself, like my contemporaries. But by the time uh, shortly after the election, and then in high school, I really became an issue for me to like be sensitive to race issues and the um, and the whole political ramifications of that. So I went from being kind of a parochial kid who didn't know too much about the world to being very conscious of uh, the kind of the need for civil rights and uh, taking a kind of progressive stand in that regard. So I guess that's the one issue yeah. of race was probably the one big thing that's had an impact on my life. I've always been interested in race issues and even in my research, uh, as a psychology professor, I've, I've made special attention to kind of understanding uh, how uh, the life narratives of African Americans and whites uh, sometimes uh, are simpatico and sometimes clash. And so one of the things that I noticed on your CV was after Valparaiso, you went to Harvard and you got your PhD at Harvard in three years. Uh, how? That's it's probably a record. Uh, it's not actually a good thing to get your PhD in three years. I didn't know at the time uh, whether it was a good thing or not. Uh, I was very efficient and uh, focused in my work. And it turned out a lot of the research I was doing in my first year ended up being the kinds of things I could put together for a dissertation. My uh, girlfriend, who became my wife uh, then, uh, and still is, by the way, she was in law school. That's a three-year program. And about halfway through the second year, it became clear that I could actually finish fast. And I always thought fast was good. But actually, it's not a good thing to do because you need to be in graduate school for a longer time to amass publications. Yeah. And to kind of make connections. And so it was actually a foolish thing to do in retrospect, although I was a very good student, because I got out of graduate student and I graduate school with a PhD from Harvard. That was impressive. I, I had very few publications to my name. And that, of course, is really important to get a job in academia. But through a fluke, I got a job at Loyola University in Chicago, wonderful uh, university. I spent nine years there. And I, I still don't know quite why they hired me. Uh, except that uh, I got along very well with uh, the chairperson and a few other people during the interview. And uh, yeah, so it kind of worked out. But uh, yeah, I don't recommend that. I think when people go to graduate school to get a doctorate, they should stay at least four or five years, uh, take their time. It's I loved Harvard. It was a fabulous experience. I wish I had stayed longer. Well, your CV indicates that you clearly have, uh, in subsequent years and decades, managed to um, 
get some publications out, uh, I say with a bit of understatement there. Uh, and uh, my understanding is a lot of your work uh, focuses on personality and, and much of what, what I want to discuss with you today uh, relates to personality. But of course, uh, much of your work is also focused, as you've noted, on a narrative. And let's let's start with personality just because that connects, as I, as I see it, really well with uh, your new book that's coming out. And so just to get the listeners who don't know personality at all oriented, let's take a deep dive into the ocean. Uh, pardon this horrible pun, but ocean, of course, is a mnemonic uh, often used to uh, keep in mind the names of the big five personality traits. So openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and what's often called neuroticism. Uh, can you, if you were going to encapsulate that in brief for someone who hadn't ever studied it, how would you define each of those? Yeah, happy to talk about those. But before I do that, let me just give a kind of overarching sense of what personality is. And personality refers to differences, psychological differences, the really important psychological differences between people, the differences that make a difference in life. And so, you know, how one person may seem to be very outgoing and committed, another person is shy and diffident. So we use all of these expressions words and accounts to make sense of how people vary in terms of their psychological functioning. And personality psychology tries to capture that variation in a scientific way. And so the big five, the O-C-E-A-N, the ocean traits, they're really important in that they capture one particular level of personality, which is what I would call personality uh, from the standpoint of the social actor which is to say, how do we perform our roles in everyday life? Uh, But uh, I should say there are other levels of personality as well, two other ones in particular. But let's just talk about the social actor because it's the most obvious. It's the one most on the surface. It's the level of personality that, you know, is part of everyday kind of observation. And it's just sort of how do we size each other up as, as human beings? And it turns out there's a million different ways to do it psychologically. But when you do all the statistical analyses that people who are way more quantitatively oriented than I am have done over the last 70 years or so, it comes down to five big dimensions, the big five. The first of them is openness. If we go in the order of the word ocean, it makes it easy to remember. So openness refers to a whole bunch of traits that get at how uh, kind of open-minded, intellectually curious, uh, sort of forward-looking, questioning, skeptical you are about life. That's the high end of openness versus the low end, being more dogmatic and somewhat close-minded, but also committed to certain sorts of basic truths and principles. It's not necessarily good to be high or low on openness. I mean, that you know, there's, there's pluses and minuses to both. And like all of the big five traits, it's a continuum, with most of us being somewhere sort of in the middle of this continuum. It's a, like a bell-shaped curve, like height. You know, very few of us are extremely short or extremely tall. We're all somewhere distributed there on that line. And so it is with openness. Every once in a while, you'll find somebody who's way, way, way off the map, high on openness and sometimes low. So that's the first one, conscientiousness. See how hardworking, focused, dutiful, disciplined you are, how organized versus on the other end, how kind of unreliable, disorganized, slovenly, impulsive you might be. This is arguably the most important of the five in predicting success in life. If you 
create success by how well you do in school or how much money you make or how well you do in your profession. Conscientiousness, being high on it, that's always good. And it predicts um, success. It also predicts mortality. I just say people who are higher in conscientiousness tend to live a little longer, all other things being equal. Uh, extroversion E, kind of what you think it is, being outgoing and sociable. But it's also there's a piece in it about dominance, about being the center of attention and mm-hmm. commanding the room when you walk in. Some people are just really socially dominant. And that's the really high extroverts out there. On the other end, on the introversion end, you have people. People who are uh, shyer, more reticent, uh, less socially dominant, um, kind of uh, recede into the background. Agreeableness, A, arguably the most important trait worldwide in terms of like what we care about most. And it boils down to how nice a person is. And, and that sounds kind of namby-pamby, but actually it's <laughs> fundamental for living in groups. I mean, if you were all jerks, menacing, malevolent, low agreeable people, we wouldn't get along and probably we wouldn't be around. We wouldn't have evolved to live as group-oriented organisms as we have. So, uh, yeah, I mean, people high in agreeableness, they're caring, they're loving, they're altruistic, they're humble, they're, you can count on them, they're great friends, they're loyal, and on the low end, you have malevolence, mean-spiritedness, crudeness, lack of humility, lying to a certain extent goes with the low end. There's a lot of bad traits on the low end of agreeableness, shading into things like psychopathy, mm-hmm. hatred of others. And finally, neuroticism, maybe an unfortunate name, uh, you could call it negative emotionality, keep the N in there. So the N, people high in N, uh, they suffer from a lot of negative emotion. Uh, now we all do at one time or another, feel sadness or anxiety or guilt, remorse. I mean, these are common human experiences and you need to have experiences like that in order to adapt because negative emotions tell you that there's something wrong in the world. But some of us have a lot more negative emotion day in and day out than do others, even within a non-clinical kind of distribution. That is to say, even within a spectrum of human normality, you have people on the high end of neuroticism who do indeed uh, experience more negative emotion on a daily life and a lot of also alteration in emotion, intense feelings of negativity, and then they go away, then they come back kind of unpredictably. At the low end, you've got those folks out there who are fortunate enough, I think it's fortunate to be just really stoic. Uh, They don't seem to be bothered by a lot of negative emotion. Sure, bad things happen in their lives, but they kind of just cope with it. They're very, they're very, um, uh, resilient and uh, and sometimes though when you're really really low in, in neuroticism it, it also seems like you're kind of removed a bit and and uh, so uh, take President Obama for yep. example I mean he was probably the lowest in neuroticism of any president in recent memory well Reagan too Ronald Reagan just uh, you know nothing seemed to bother him and it used to kind of bother people that they were like that I mean even supporters of Mr. Obama who loved him loved his oratory and his skill and his commitment, sometimes felt like, well, he's, he's, he's a little bloodless. You know, it'd be nice if he got angry once in a while and just really lashed out and showed his negative emotions. He must be like tamping them down. Well, maybe, but I think for a lot of people, low in neuroticism, they just don't feel a lot of negative emotion. It just doesn't get to them very much. And uh, Well, if I, could just, if I could just jump in, in, in thinking about that, and first of all, thanks for that. 
a very helpful review of the five the of the big five in thinking about Obama specifically, but I think this could be a more general argument. Uh, what would your reaction be to the claim that your analysis from afar is not necessarily diagnostic of his authentic personality, whatever that might be, his private personality, because you're only seeing his public self-presentation? I would plead guilty. I mean, that's the nature of traits. Traits are public performative um, features. Uh, you don't have to be a psychoanalyst or a brain surgeon or have much of a education at all to be a trait analyst. I mean, we all do it. We've evolved to do it. We check each other out. And so we notice these things within minutes in conversations with strangers, even people start to make trait attributions, but yes, they are on the surface. They are how you perform your roles. But I, having said that, I'm, I'm uh, reluctant to suggest that they're not they're not true, that they're not authentic. I mean, we are authentically social creatures. We evolved to live in groups. And so, yeah, you know, there's a private side in all of this and we may hide certain things and, and that gets to other aspects of personality. Uh, but uh, traits are really a big deal. They're important. And uh, I guess importantly, at the same time, they're easy to kind of assess in each other. But if you get past them, you get to the more private, you get to what I call the second level of personality, which is a level of agency, motives, goals, what you want in life. Because after all, traits don't tell you anything about what you want. I mean, if a person's high in agreeableness, what does that mean? What does he want in life? What does he want to achieve? Well, he's a nice person. He wants to be nice. Well, it's kind of like he can't help it. He is just nice. That's kind of how he does his thing. But does he want to become president of the United States? Does he want to be a CEO? Does he want to have happy marriage? I mean, what does he want? Traits don't tell you that. You have to get to a deeper level, the level of motivated agency, your goals, your values, the person as an agent. And then if you go deeper yet or further yet, you get to a third level, which I call the level of the author, uh, actor, agent, author. How, does the, how do you, as an author of your life, create a story for yourself? And the story, which is inside your head for the most part, it may connect to your traits, but it may not. So you've got these three layers of personality, actor, agent, author, or traits, goals, and stories, respectively. And they complement each other somewhat, but they're kind of held together in a loose association. And that's what personality is. And none of the three parts is any more real or authentic than any of the other parts. They're just all there and different. So I want to work my way, I suppose, if I understand you, work my way down over the course of this interview toward the level of authorship uh, of stories. But let's start with Trump as an actor. Uh, from uh, the reading of yours that I've done, uh, so a couple of articles in The Guardian and then an Atlantic essay uh, titled The Mind of Donald Trump, my sense is that uh, your sense of his temperamental profile, at least at that trait level, is defined by two of the big five. Um, am I right about that? Can you describe yeah, that? Sure. I mean, I mean, er everybody can be sort of rated or ranked on all of the big five, and you can certainly do that with Mr. Trump too. But there are two traits that stand out of the five that are just really remarkably extreme. 
One of them is extroversion. And, you know, most politicians are highly extroverted, but even by the standards of politicians that, you know, that are out there, Mr. Trump is probably off the map in terms of the social dominance features of extroversion and so on. He captures everybody's attention immediately, not just because he's president. He has done this all his life. You can go back to second grade. And little Donnie Trump was the center of attention all the time. Uh, in, in second grade, it was by creating mischief. It was by punching out his second grade music teacher. I mean, there were lots of different ways in which he did this. Uh, but very outgoing, very sociable, uh, performing all the time in a highly socially dominant way. So there are other presidents who've had that. You know, there were a bunch of uh, a group of psychologists and historians rated all the presidents up through George W. Bush uh, on um, the big five traits. And among the highest were uh, Bill Clinton, Teddy Roosevelt. I really think Trump out extroverts them all. I think he's just really on the high end, which suggests that he has tremendous social energy in any kind of social situation. He just brings it on in a very strong way. Extroverts do that, but I don't think anybody does it quite at the level of Mr. Trump. And then on the uh, the other trait is agreeableness, and but of course on the low, 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 rock bottom end, like no other public <laughs> figure in my lifetime. I mean, it's 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 really you can't really exaggerate. There is there is really nothing like it, at least in my uh, in my sixty plus years on the planet of kind of thinking about these sorts of things in terms of public figures, especially public political figures. He is so mean. He is so tough. He is so aggressive. Uh, He just takes on fights like no other politician I I can think of. Before Mr. Trump, uh, people often say, well, uh, Richard Nixon was a disagreeable person because he was a little cynical and you know, kind of negative and so forth. And yeah, he was pretty, pretty negative, kind of aggressive. There have been others like that, but, but no one comes close uh, to, to Donald Trump in that. So if you take those two traits, high extroversion and rock bottom, unbelievably low agreeableness, you put them together and it's kind of an interesting and combustible combination. You have a dominant social actor who is driven to, to, um, to find reward in the social world, you know, to, to attain reward, to win reward all the time, but who is not too concerned about the collateral damage that occurs uh, as he's doing that because people low in agreeableness, they don't really care too much about how, you know, their negative effects on others. And so they are not especially astute people low in agreeableness with respect to things like empathy and understanding of others and care and altruism and sympathy. I mean, you just, it's, it's almost impossible to imagine Mr. Trump showing any of those characteristics. Uh, And indeed, if you go, you know, traits are easy to determine. You go back in time, 40, 50 years, how do people create Donald Trump, uh, describe Donald Trump, even his family, his friends, they'll say, yeah, I mean, he's just really, outgoing, socially dominant, and they will concede that he, he can be mean. He's not very nice most of the time. Now, some of them will say he's covering up a, a soft spot, but he's covered it up remarkably well. So 
those two. As far as the other three go, I mean, they're useful to think about very briefly. I mean, he's probably moderately low on neuroticism. I don't, he doesn't suffer from a lot of negative emotion, except for anger. But yep. anger is a positive emotion for him. It energizes him and feeds into his extroversion. And indeed, there's research that suggests that many people high in extroversion are quite subject to anger. So we think of anger as negative, but I'm not sure it's negative. The real negative ones are like sadness and fear and anxiety, and he just doesn't express these things. And some will say, well, he's hiding it. Again, maybe, but I, I think the simpler explanation is this is not a man prone to sadness. He's not a man prone to anxiety and fear. This just doesn't happen with him. So I think he's relatively low in neuroticism. Throughout most of his life, he's been medium on conscientiousness. He's a pretty hardworking guy, at least he was, before he became president. I mean, he, he really was pretty impressive in terms of how focused he was through most of his career. So I'd give him medium to medium high marks on C. And what's the other one? Uh, uh, openness. Openness, yeah. A real weird mixed bag, mostly low because he kind of just does things the way he's always done them in that regard. However, if you, if you see openness as being somebody who's like a change agent and who kind of you know, disregards the norms and uh, you know, so thinks outside the box, to use that cliche, as president, he's the most norm-violating person to occupy the office since George Washington or before, I mean, ever. So in that sense, he's kind of got weird high openness. So it's, it's a mix uh, of, of, of contradictory things uh, when it comes to openness. Well, on the subject of openness, I, I saw in your Atlantic piece that uh, and this Atlantic piece was written in 2016 in, in June. So uh, when Trump was still uh, candidate Trump rather than President Trump. Uh, and I, if it was June, he hadn't even received the nomination, but was on uh, on on the way to doing so. You wrote uh, you, you 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 advanced at least some tentative predictions. And you, you at one point said that because Trump was not near a quote, burdened with bushes, referring to uh, George W. Bush, uh, not burdened with Bush's low level of openness, end quote, uh, he might be flexible and pragmatic. Uh, so at least contrasting uh, him to um, a recent president who you suggested was even lower in openness. I, I wonder if, uh, in, now that we are approaching the four-year mark, if in terms of that prediction that uh, being relatively high in openness, at least compared to G.W. Bush, might translate into flexibility and pragmatism. Do you see evidence in Trump's governing style that has been consistent with that prediction? Not a lot. I would yeah. say that prediction was uh, partly right, but but largely off base because he's not I, I, I think there are a number of things that I, I wouldn't have predicted. I, I think a lot of predictions were right on, but, but in terms of like what didn't kind of go the way I might have predicted, well, first, I never thought he'd win the election. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and I, I wrote the piece in April. I mean, so, I mean, and the Atlantic, we had an agreement that the, the piece would run if he was to get the nomination. Nobody thought he was going to be president. I didn't even think he'd get the nomination. But then by the time the piece came out, it was very clear he was going to get the nomination. All right. So, but everybody, you know, kind of, or many people mispredicted on that. I, I think many people thought, even his detractors thought, that once he got into office, he would, to a certain extent, follow the norms of the office. Uh, because everybody else has. But, but he hasn't done that. Yeah. 
example. Uh, people thought he would try to work with Democrats, maybe on infrastructure and things like that. Uh, I, I think he has the, the capacity to do that. He I, he's generally is a he's not ideologically driven. That's the other difference between him and George W. I mean, George W. Low in openness, but George W. knew what he believed in. I mean, he believed in certain fundamentals about how the world works. Trump doesn't have a belief structure like that. He believes in himself, and that's all he believes in. Yeah. But he has found it to be useful. That is to say, pragmatic to stick with his base. So, so the efforts to kind of like work with the other side haven't been, there haven't been very many of them because they don't really help him in this polarized environment. So in a sense, the pragmatic thing to do is to stick with his base in that regard. Uh, and, 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 and having said all that too, I mean, it, it's not that Mr. Trump is really high in openness. I just, I would say compared to George W. Bush, he's, he's higher than George W. Bush, but everybody's higher than George W. Bush. And, and again, I should say being low in openness, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, people low in openness typically believe in something and that's what keeps them kind of from exploring other options. Donald Trump is just a weird dude when it comes to that kind of thing because he doesn't have a belief system. He doesn't really have an ideology. Uh, he, he is, there, there's nothing he really cares about in terms of principles about how to govern. He doesn't care about any of that kind of thing. He cares about one thing as a motivated agent behind his disagreeableness and his extroversion deeper there is the narcissistic core. And that's something I talk about in the 2016 piece, but people have been talking about that forever when it comes to Donald Trump. I mean, he really has a very, very strong narcissistic agenda to the exclusion of every other motive or goal or value you can think of. So at the end of the Atlantic piece, and this is, uh, you, you mentioned narcissism and this is quite relevant to that at the end of the Atlantic piece, um, actually the very end, uh, you write the following. Who really is Donald Trump? What's behind the actor's mask? Uh, I can discern little more than narcissistic motivations and a complimentary personal narrative about winning at any cost. It is as if Trump has invested so much of himself in developing and refining his socially dominant role that he has nothing left over to create a meaningful story for his life or for the nation. And then you emphasize this next sentence. It is always Donald Trump playing Donald Trump, fighting to win, but never knowing why. So that's the end of the quote. And I want to go back to this three-level structure you laid out earlier. Actor, then agent, and then fundamentally author, uh, as in the author, I presume, of one's life story. Right. If I understand that final quote, you seem to be suggesting that there's nothing there at that level of authorship. Am I misreading you? No, you're not misreading it at all. Although I have to tell you that last paragraph, it's, 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 it's ambivalent because in, as you read, I mean, I said, well, there's sort of a story there. There's a story about winning at all costs and kind of making America great again to be a winner and all that. So it's kind of a story. So that's the middle of the paragraph. But then by the time you get to the end, I'm sort of saying, yeah, but it's not much of one. So I was struggling at that point to make sense of Donald Trump in terms of the three layers of personality. That is to say, actor, agent, author. And at that point in my thinking, I was very much um, uh, taken with one particular quote that comes from an interview that a man, uh, uh, excuse me, it comes from a, 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 a lunch 
that a guy had uh, with Donald Trump way back around 2006 or so when the two of them were negotiating terms uh, for the sale of a golf course or the sale of land in Scotland that Trump bought so that he could put up a golf course. And I believe the man's name was Tom Griffin. And Tom Griffin sitting with Donald Trump in a pub in uh, in Scotland and He's, he's saying, you know, it's just, just this really weird sitting across from Donald Trump because I know he's Donald Trump. He looks like Donald Trump. He talks like Donald Trump. <laughs> I know it's Donald Trump, but it's as if this guy across from me is playing the role of Donald Trump. He's, not, he's Donald Trump playing Donald Trump. And so I, I use that idea in the article at first to say, well, yeah, he's an actor, but then we're all actors. We're all playing our roles. And so Trump plays his role in a certain uniquely Trumpian way. Uh, but, and then if you look beneath the role a little bit, you see that, well, what motivates the roles and how he plays them is narcissism, concern for the self. But is there anything else there? And so by the end of the article, I'm saying there isn't really much. There must be some kind of story. There must be some level, but it's very depleted. It's hardly anything at all. Uh, he, uh, it, it's Donald Trump playing Donald Trump most of the time. But now, four years later, and this is the thesis of the book I've written on Trump, I, I really have come to the conclusion that, that I, I want to push it beyond, uh, you know, put, take that last sentence literally and, and to the full extent to suggest that, yeah, he, he's one of the very few people on the planet who does not have a third level of personality. There is no story in Donald Trump's head about who he is and how he came to be. And moreover, he has really no narrative for America. Every other president, or most others as far as I can tell, they, to a certain extent, they have a vision of who they are in life. And that vision connects up in some way or another to what they th see for America. They've got stories on both sides. But in Trump's case, it, it is as if it is the truth. Donald Trump is always playing Donald Trump, which is to say he is mainly an actor playing a role. And people say, well, that's like Ronald Reagan, you know, President Reagan. He was an actor. Ronald Reagan was an actor most of his life. And when he was president, he played the role of president. So Ronald Reagan played the role of president. And people can say, oh, okay, that makes sense. You know, I can see that. Donald Trump doesn't play the role of president. Donald Trump plays the role of Donald Trump, which is the same role he plays in every situation. And it's to the point where the role of Donald Trump that he plays all the time is Donald Trump and only Donald Trump. And there isn't anything else. So in a sense, it seems like, well, he's faking it. That's what Tom Griffin felt in that interview. You know, God, it's weird. It's like he's pretending to be Donald Trump. He's, he's always on script. He's always playing the role. And it's just, it's just freaking me out. And well, what freaks me out as a psychologist today in 2020 is that, yeah, Tom Griffin was right. Donald Trump is always playing Donald Trump. He is incredibly fake and authentic at the same time. He is the most authentic fake on the planet, which is to say that is what he is. He's playing the role. And go, yeah, but it's not real. Well, no, the role is who he is, and that is all he is. So there isn't a story in Donald Trump's head about you know who he really is and how he came to be and where he's going. He's always playing the role in the moment, in the scene, wherever it is. So if you're having lunch with him in Scotland and he's negotiating a deal, 
he is all there right now in his extroverted, disagreeable glory, sitting across from you in the table. And he's not hiding anything. He's not like thinking in the back of his head, you know, I got to get out of this pretty soon because I've got a plane to catch. And I'm, you know, next week I'm, I've got a meeting with some friends and I'm working on this other thing. No, he, the, none of that is there. He is right there with you, 100% focused on you to win the deal, like a boxer in the ring who has three minutes to survive it, knock the other opponent out, or land some jabs, or at least defend himself, and then go back to his corner. That's everyday life. Three minutes in the ring, it's a scene that you're focused on, you're right there in the moment, and then it's over. So in the case of Tom Griffin, Trump gets what he wants because he usually does in the deal and Trump leaves. And now what happens with that scene? It's gone. It's, it's like erased because Donald Trump has moved on to another scene in his life. And these scenes, each one of them is like a teeny little story, but they don't add up. It's not like one leads to the next. He's always in the moment. He's the episodic man who's focused on the here and now and to the exclusion of everything else. And so, you know, he doesn't have a life story. He doesn't have a long-term vision for who he is. He doesn't have a story for the country. He's just right there in the moment trying to win. So that last paragraph that I wrote in that article, that one thing I would change is I, I wouldn't say that he's got a story about winning. I'd say he doesn't have a story because he's always about winning in the moment, but the moments don't add up to any kind of of narrative, narrative arc. And so I call him kind of the episodic man. He's not prospective, which means he doesn't look forward very far. He's not retrospective. He has no concern for his own personal past. And he's not introspective. He doesn't go deep. He's right here in the surface. You know, there's no past. There's no future. There's no depth. It's just Donald Trump playing Donald Trump in the moment, I- struggling to win the moment. So I, 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 I want to, I'm sorry, I want to jump in and uh, go back to that part of the article near the beginning where you discuss uh, Tom Griffin and, and, and Mark Singer, who uh, uh, was uh, writing of this uh, interaction in, in the New Yorker. And you say that um, Singer asked uh, uh, Trump, when, when you're shaving in front of the mirror in the morning, what are you thinking about? And uh, Singer writes that Trump appeared uh, baffled, uh, hoping to uncover the man behind the actor's mask. Singer tried a different tack. Okay, this is Singer to Trump. I guess I'm asking, do you consider yourself ideal company? And Trump's reply is, you really want to know what I consider ideal company? A total piece of ass. But, it, but then it goes on. And you, um, Dan McAdams, you say you might have phrased Singer's question this way. Who are you, Mr. Trump, when you are alone? And when I think about that question, my tentative answer is when Trump is alone, he's looking for an audience. And usually, no matter what time of day it is or night, he looks for that audience uh, through Twitter. I agree with your assessment. I agree with your assessment. But let me back up on the Mark Singer thing just a bit. Okay. So, so what I wanted to say, and the editor's took this sentence out is what is it like Mr. Trump when you are with yourself? Because that's really the key here. You're alone, but you're, you're, you're with yourself 
you know, and, and this drove Mark Singer crazy. I mean, he spent a lot of time with Donald Trump trying to figure the guy out. And he's just like, what's it like when you're by yourself and you're with yourself? Are you thinking about yourself? What are you thinking about? Who are you? Blah, blah, blah. What's behind the mask? And Singer could never get anything. Trump gave a glib response about a piece of ass, which was kind of funny. And I think he got the best of Singer in that situation. But I think Trump never really understood the question. He doesn't really understand this idea that, you know, the question of identity, who are you? Who are you really, you know, underneath the role and so forth? And finally, Singer had to conclude this. He said, well, Mr. Trump has achieved something remarkable in life, an existence unmolested by the rumblings of a soul, <laughs> which is a great quote from Singer. And I, I endorse it 100%, except that last word. I would say an existence unencumbered by the you know, by the rumblings of a story. There's no narrative in, in Trump's head about who he is and where he's going. But yeah, so he, uh, to get back to your point, um, yes, he's, he's, all, he's looking for an audience, okay? Uh, and so he, he gets one quickly. And then, and, but what does he want the audience to do? He wants the audience to do the same thing that he does when he looks in the mirror. And so, you know, what does Donald Trump see when he looks in the psychological mirror? He sees the same thing he looks, he sees when he looks at himself in a literal mirror. He sees his face. He sees his being. He sees Donald Trump all the time, the beautiful, majestic figure that he has in his mind about who he is, just as Narcissus and the ancient Greek myth sat by the pool, looked into the pool, saw this beautiful reflection and fell in love with it and couldn't look at anything else and eventually withered away. So that is Donald Trump's existence as well, except it's a little different. Because narcissists didn't care if other people looked at the pool. But Trump does. He wants other people to look at him, to see what he sees when he looks at himself. And he has an insatiable desire for that. And so, yeah, he'll go on Twitter. He'll find other ways to attract attention. It doesn't take much because, to be truthful, it is hard to take your eyes off of Donald Trump figuratively and literally. I mean, going back to the Republican debates, he's, he's big, he's menacing, he's extraordinary. He's what a force. There's nothing like him on the planet. And you just can't look away. It's hard to look away. And so he is successful in getting people to look at him, to stare at him, literally and figuratively. And that's kind of psychologically what he's doing all the time. So, you know, Donald Trump is always playing Donald Trump. And to the extent there's any reflection, he's watching Donald Trump play Donald Trump and thinking, God, that's beautiful. So with, with my eye on the clock, I want to be sure to dig more deeply into narrative. We've been focusing on personality for the, for the bulk of this. But one more question about what you're doing when you, from a distance, uh, write about Trump's uh, personality profile. As you noted earlier, other people without needing to rely on the big five have noted that uh, there's elements of narcissism here. They, they've characterized him uh, as having a combustible uh, temperament. What's the value that you see added by your use of psychological theory and research in your characterization of Trump? 
Well, when it comes to the personality traits, I think what you have there uh, with the big five is a kind of formalization of everyday common sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, traits are not, as I suggested earlier, they're, they're not rocket science. And what, what psychologists have uh, achieved with the ocean is that they, they've delineated the, the basic categories that human beings use in describing each other. It's an evidence-based system. And we have tons of research, 50 years or more of research, showing that not only are these traits observable and important, but they predict really, really key things in life. So it's a science-based description of temperament. Beyond that, I think it gets interesting when you start talking about his motivations. There's a lot of nonsense written about Trump's narcissism. I mean, everybody agrees that he's narcissistic to an extreme. But then there's all this talk about, well, he suffers from a narcissistic personality disorder. It's a diagnosis. Well, maybe. But the problem with that diagnosis is that, you know, people who suffer, as it were, from personality disorders are supposed to be not functioning very well in life and that their relationships and their success are compromised and they feel really bad about it. Well, the man's president of the United States. You can't really say he's suffering in terms of his achievements in life. I mean, and he actually seems pretty happy to tell you the truth. So I'm not sure it helps to kind of use these clinical diagnoses. I try to stay away from them. I think there's a lot of interesting research on narcissism as a trait, excuse me, not as a trait, as a motivational tendency. And the the way in which it, you know, he is so focused on it in life, I think is, is important. There's a feature of it I haven't talked about. I'll just put it in really quickly because I know you want to talk more about narrative. But Trump's narcissism has a very peculiar quality to it. Most narcissists, you know, they love themselves. They put themselves above everybody else uh, and, uh, and so forth. And, and, and then they create a story about their greatness and about how they've overcome bad things and so forth in life to achieve this tremendous uh, effect, whatever it is that they've achieved. Trump, as I've suggested, doesn't have a story like that. More interestingly, I think, is that like when, when he considers himself and so on and how, you know, you know, how great he is and how he has to win every moment and so forth, he, he kind of objectifies himself. He kind of looks at himself and loves himself as if he were a thing mm-hmm. rather than a person. And I actually think Donald Trump is not a person in his own mind. He doesn't, he doesn't see himself as a person. And many of his followers don't quite see himself as a person either. They see himself as more than, they see him as more than a person. He's like a superhero or a mythic force or, or an overarching kind of like power or maybe a, a servant or a, a mechanism for some divine plan, as many Christian fundamentalists seem to believe in this case. So he's more than a person, but at the same time, he's less than a person too, because it doesn't have the kinds of things we expect persons to have. An inner life, a story about who he is, uh, doubt, conflict, all those kinds of things. That makes him a very different kind of narcissist, I think, than almost everybody else, at least that I've ever studied. Donald Trump loves himself the way I love my new car, which is to say Donald Trump loves himself as this beautiful, brilliant thing. And when my car gets a scratch or it gets in a collision, I'm going to feel really bad. I'll get it repaired or maybe I'll trade it in. But Donald Trump as a thing, he can't get a scratch. 
He can't have a collision. He can't ever lose. He can't ever make a mistake. And so when Donald Trump says things, as he did on The Tonight Show about eight years ago or so, like, you know, I think it's really great to apologize, but you know, you got to be wrong. And, and I've never been wrong, so I've never apologized. When he says things like that, you think, oh, he's pretending that's goofy. But no, it's Donald Trump playing Donald Trump. He believes that. If he were ever to lose, if he were ever to like have a scratch on the car and so forth, well, then he couldn't love that thing because that thing wouldn't be beautiful and perfect, which ergo, he can't lose. He will never lose. He will never have a bad moment in his life because he goes from one to the next and he has to win every one. If he were ever to lose one, it would be like my getting my car in a wreck and I'd have to trade it in. So it's a weird kind of self-objectification that Donald Trump does. And I don't think other narcissists do that very much. Uh, and um, he kind of demeans himself, as it were. You know, he, he treats himself as if he were a thing. One of the things, and please correct me as you begin your answer if I get any of this wrong, but my understanding from uh, reading some sections of your book, um, uh, it's uh, The Redemptive Self, is that you draw a distinction between two kinds of story arcs. Uh, redemptive story arcs or redemptive stories where things go from bad to good. Uh, so for me, coming from Arkansas, one such story that's salient for me is the story of Bill Clinton's life going from uh, a childhood with, uh, at least on his account, a stepfather who was alcoholic and abusive, um, including abusive toward uh, Clinton's mother to obviously going on to become a Rhodes Scholar, law professor, president. It's a story of going from humble roots and abuse to notoriety and success and, uh, and leadership. By contrast, you refer to contamination stories where the art goes in the opposite direction from good to somehow bad or worse. Would it be, assuming that I've drawn that distinction um, uh, adequately, would it be safe to say in your view that as voters, uh, U.S. residents, U.S. voters are drawn to presidential candidates who either personally or for the nation as a whole have a redemptive story to offer? Yeah, I would say that is true. And the, the, I think the characterization you made between redemptive and contamination is correct, it, 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 but I don't want to suggest that those are the only two kinds of stories out there. Sure. And, you know, most, most life stories are mixed and there's a little bit of redemption here. There's a little bit of contamination there. And you can look at the big arc, but you can also look at little arcs within the big arcs and so forth. But I think Clinton's a good example of a redemptive narrative for his life. I also think George W. Bush had a powerful yep. redemptive story about overcoming alcoholism and focusing on his Christian mission in life. Um, Barack Obama channeled a certain kind of, a redemptive narrative for himself and the nation. It's not that he suffered a lot early on, but he saw himself as part of a progressive narrative of change uh, that you trace back to the 19th century uh, with the emancipation of the slaves and forward to civil rights and women's rights and so on. So there are these broad national narratives that Americans love, have traditionally, and they tend to be progress stories but they, so they have a kind of redemptive arc to them, although it's not always really smooth. And up until President Trump, most candidates for office have tried to sort of project one of these, uh, some version of a redemptive story 
uh, onto America and also as part of their own lives and kind of connect the two. And I think George W. Bush in some ways did it as well as anybody in that regard. Donald Trump is singular in that he, he doesn't really have a redemptive story for his life. He doesn't have a story of any kind. It's moving from one moment to the next. But he does kind of suggest a narrative the make America great story right. for, for, uh, you know, for a, a broader, for culture. And there is well, a, well, wait, wait, wait. make America great again. It's a story again. of restoration. Very good. A story of restoration, make America great again. And so there is a kind of vague narrative there about like, well, once upon a time we were great and then we fell. God knows why there's a million different reasons. And now we're going to get back what we lost. And, and, I mean, I, there, there, so there is a kind of narrative arc to that. It's not Donald Trump's life. He doesn't have a make Donald Trump again great story for his life. There's a disconnect there. But, but he does kind of suggest a story in the minds of others. And for some people, that's a compelling narrative. So I wonder, so earlier in the interview, you said uh, that in your view, Donald Trump had no narrative for America, but perhaps anticipating that I was going to invoke uh, MAGA MAGA as a counterexample. You do note that it is a kind of narrative. I, I wonder if the one of the reasons you might initially view it as something less than a narrative for America is that it's only about asserting U.S. dominance. It's not about asserting U.S. dominance or leadership in the service of some abstract principle such as freedom or liberty or justice. It's just in the same way that it's always Donald Trump playing Donald Trump in order to win at any cost. Make America Great Again, as I understand it, is simply about the U.S. winning for the sake of the U.S. winning. Is that absence of some sort of abstract principle in the service of which U.S. victory might uh, be framed? Is that why you see that narrative somehow not a narrative or impoverished? Yes, I see it as impoverished. You know, I mean, it, it, technically, it's a story. It's got a beginning, middle, and end. It's, it, there's, a, there's a kind of progression to it in a way. There's change. But unlike typical national narratives, cultural master narratives, and, include, and also unlike most people's individual life stories, it has no moral meaning at all. To win again is just to win. And everybody wants to win. Winning is good, right? And Donald Trump famously said while he was, you know, campaigning, I think, we're going to win so much, you're going to get tired of winning, right? <laughs> uh, and, and of course, he never gets tired of winning. And it, but yeah, typically, when you when you think about winning, you think about winning for what? You know, like, what's the point? Are we going to are we going to enjoy the fruits of our victory? You know, it's interesting. Donald Trump never really enjoys the fruits of his victory. He just enjoys the process of winning. So it's not like Donald Trump ever like, you know, he has a good year, let's say, in reality TV. And then he decides with Melania, we're going to go off and celebrate for about three weeks and just have a great vacation together and enjoy it. No, Donald Trump wakes up every day. He needs to win again, right? But most people don't live life that way. And that's kind of, that's not how nations work, right? Uh, you know, it's not like it's a football season and every, if we start over again every fall and our goal is to get to the Super Bowl and then, then it's done, then we start again. And, you know, that's, that's not how a nation develops and that's not how individual people develop. But that is how Donald Trump experiences life. You know, in a sense, I, I analogize it to three minutes in the ring. You could also say, you know, it's like a football game. You, you, every, life, every day is a game. Uh, 
you win or you lose, then you go to the next game. And the next game is not related to the previous game. You may have gotten killed in the previous game, 55 to 3, but you know, you start over in the next game with a blank slate. Life isn't like that. But Donald Trump's is in terms of that episodic kind of nature to it. So, yeah, it's a story. Make America Great, again, has a kind of narrative feel to it. But there's no moral meaning to it. There's no, like, you know, and, and, and I think I would have thought that that would be an unsatisfying story. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, we've gotten to a point in American history where many people, at least, are cynical about redemptive narratives about the kind of oratory that President um, Obama and even President Bush kind of put out there about how, you know, America is a force for goodness in the world, for positive change and so on. I mean, you know, one of the reasons Bush invaded Iraq, it wasn't just about the weapons of mass destruction. The neocons actually thought that they could transform Iraq into a democratic nation. That was a good thing to do, they felt. They were wrong, but that's what they felt. They had a kind of moral mission there. And sometimes moral missions are troubling and they get us into trouble, but it's just weird to live in a world now where America is no longer good. We just have to win, but we're not a force for good. Donald Trump doesn't even understand the idea of being a force for good. You have to win. The boxer in the ring for three minutes, he doesn't have an idea about being a force for good. He's just got to land a punch on his opponent and that's all there is to life. And that's Donald Trump's life. So he, in, in 1980, People Magazine interviewed him and he, they said, what's your philosophy of life, Mr. Trump? And uncharacteristically, he actually kind of stepped back a little bit and said something abstract. He said this, man is the most vicious of all animals and life is a series of battles ending in victory or defeat. And those 20 words, they define Donald Trump's sort of approach to life. Each day is a battle, ending in victory or defeat. You move on to the next one, and you start over. So, uh, so the book's title is The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump, A Psychological Reckoning. I, I hope that in this interview, we've given listeners some sense of uh, what might be in the book, but does one thing come to mind that we that's in the book that we haven't at all touched on that you'd want to allude to as a, to, to whet potential readers' appetites? Yeah, I, I, much of what we've talked about is in the book, as you suggested, the idea that Trump doesn't have a story, that he's the episodic man. We talk a lot about his traits, the high, agree, the high uh, extroversion, low agreeableness, how he uses extroversion as a strength, how that's a real powerful force for him and so forth. Um, we, there's a lot in the book about narcissism. I think the one theme we haven't discussed much, uh, haven't touched on at all, actually, one of them is uh, the, uh, the authoritarian nature of Donald Trump's approach to the presidency, which is, again, something maybe not everybody would have predicted necessarily. Uh, but uh, in, in one of the later chapters, I, I call it the chapter of us, as in us versus them, uh, I explore you know, the, 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 this authoritarian structure to Trump's presidency and how he has been seen by others as a kind of savior for the nation and how that uh, position he has vis-a-vis -vis his followers uh, undermine, potentially undermines democratic institutions and so forth. And there's a lot of talk about this, of course, now with the impeachment hearing and so forth, and separation of powers and all that. It's, it's another way, I think, in which Donald Trump maybe has surprised people a little bit. Uh, I, I think most observers, even the ones who just despised him from the get-go, figured that he would get into office and he would, you know, more or less be 
sort of uh, tied down by the norms and the conventions of being a president. And he wouldn't be able to sort of like just run roughshod over the government, uh, over others. But, uh, you know, that they were wrong. We were, we were all wrong about that. Uh, or at least we, we, we didn't realize just how far that would go. So there's, there's a lot of talk about that in the book. There's a discussion of why at this point in history, a man like Donald Trump might command that kind of authoritarian sort of, uh, dynamic, uh, the way in which he sort of speaks to the fears of, of many in this country that we're losing our status in the world or that, or that you know, um, uh, aging, uh, especially his base, aging white men especially are, are in some sense losing their hegemony and he's there to bring it back, you know, make America great again is to make America uh, you know, uh, male, patriarchal, and white again in many people's minds. That's kind of part of it. Uh, the support he gets from the alt-right. I mean, those things were sort of hinted at in the up, up, uh, up to the election, but it's all of that has become ominously much clearer uh, since then. And uh, yeah, it's worth worth talking about. So who's your audience for the book and in writing the book and sharing it with your, with that audience, what do you hope to accomplish? Well, I dedicate the book to my grandson. Okay. Um, Everett Daniel Bauer. And I say in the dedication, you know, to, to, to Everett Daniel who will look back and know more. And I think my audience, I mean, I want people to read it now, you know, I want every day, uh, educated lay audience, the same audience I had for the Atlantic article, and people who are interested in politics and psychology to read the book. But I, I'm also very concerned about the future. I mean, like people are going to look back on this day, on this time, and uh, you know we're going to get through it. There will be some future, and people will wonder like what was going on there back with this Donald Trump business. How is it that he commanded so much authority at that time in the world? What was going on? How did he come to be? So part of, part of the book, uh, or at least one thing I'm thinking about was I was thinking about as I was writing the book is how will, you know, the next generation look back on this 10 years from now, say 15 years from now. So I'm kind of writing to the future a little bit. Uh, so that's part of the audience and that's, it's a little amorphous. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's educated lay people who are interested in the intersection of politics and um, personality. Uh, and also maybe for those people who kind of want to understand this very, very strange creature. Now that, you know, who is that audience? Because, you know, he has a lot of enemies and he has a tremendously strong base and maybe the enemies don't want to understand him too much because once you understand somebody it's harder to vilify them and and maybe the supporters don't want some pointy-headed psychologist talking <laughs> you know talking trash psychological trash about their man even though i try to be evidence-based and objective throughout so i'm hoping that even in this partisan environment that there may be readers who want to understand things That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Dan McAdams for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, 
His new book is titled The Strange Case of Donald J. Trump, A Psychological Reckoning. The book is published by Oxford University Press and is coming out on March 16th, but you can pre-order it now. For more information on the book and how to pre-order it, as well as information on McAdams and the content we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, if you are a Twitter user, you can mention Tatter using the handle at Tatter underscore rags, or no matter what, you can post a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well.